You're listening to Environmentally Speaking, a weekly podcast diving into legal matters surrounding the environment, public utilities, energy, zoning, and permitting laws in Rhode Island and the surrounding areas. With your host, Marissa Desitel. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. This is uh, Environmentally Speaking. I'm Marissa Desitel, an environmental attorney with a few decades of experience. And I'm Clarice. I'm coming in with your questions, topics, and just random things I think we should talk about. And speaking of random things that I would want to talk about, uh, we have a bit of local news, uh, or at least local to us. So I was recently sent an article about a humpback whale washing up on Little Compton Beach. Um, The poor guy washed up on January 8th. And uh, if you're familiar with the Little Compton area, there's the beautiful South Shore Beach. Um, Unfortunately, he did wash up on the beach. Uh, He washed up on a private portion of the beach. So um, if people were out there thinking that they're going to go for a beach walk and see you know, a week old whale, that's not going to happen. It's on private property, but um, I thought that was something interesting. Uh, This article said- I I saw it too. Go ahead. Um, This article says that the whale is about 25 feet long and 10 tons, but it's only a young adult. Just the size of this whale is boggling to me. Yeah. And is it, it, I thought I saw in the article that they initially thought it was a female, but, or they initially thought it was the male, but it's actually a female. Oh, okay. Yeah. The, uh, the thing that I was reading didn't have any further detail on the whales, uh, the whale sex, but, uh, DEM has reached out to the, the owners of that private beach portion. And not only are they asking to come in and do some removal, but they're hoping to do an autopsy to learn a little bit more about, uh, what's happened to well, the whale Clarice, and... today is your lucky day because I have an update for you on that. Oh, yes. <laughs> Tell me what has happened to this so whale. The, Myst- the Mystic Aquarium came out and performed an autopsy or what's known as a necropsy. Mm-hmm. Um, and the conclusion of that was that I, I believe it, it is a female or was a female, excuse me. And a bulldozer was brought in to give the little lady a proper burial. So she is now buried with respect and um, the scientists had did their thing and hopefully at least her coming ashore will provide some new data and information on climate change and, and whale population. Mm-hmm. So Possibly pollution, who knows? Yeah, yep. Ugh. Well, I'm happy that she's, she's put to rest and in a morbid but beautiful way, she's gonna become some fertilizer for some awesome awesome shore plants and shore growth. Yep. yep. Yeah. But I, I saw oh. that too. I think that that was posted on our, the firm's social media account. Nice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So that's something to keep and that's something to keep an eye on. Um, all right. So shifting gears today, we're going to talk a little bit about discovery and not discovery of things on your beach, not discovery of new lands, um, but discovery in terms of uh, what you can bring in as evidence to court. Yeah. As soon as you said discovery, I thought of the, the TV channel. Oh, so discovery, discovery plus either. it's worth yeah, it. It is. It's good stuff. <laughs> discovery in the context of what we do, however, has to do with litigation and civil 
litigation, civil actions, uh, administrative actions, enforcement actions at the state government level. And then when you get to the appeals level in superior court, um, I think we in the past have talked about discovery in terms of witness depositions mm-hmm. and even funny anecdotes about witnesses testifying. So testifying, test of shouting, test of shouting. <laughs> so definitely check out our other podcasts on those issues. But I found that um, in the context of what most lay people experience, discovery is not a very well-known practice. Attorneys know all about it, of course, and so do paralegals and other people that work in the industry like you, Clarice. Um, mm-hmm. But the lay person doesn't really know what it is. So that's what was happening this past week. The firm had a, a big administrative regulatory proceeding and the scope of discovery in that context is a little different, but it led me to think that it might be a good topic for you and me to talk about. Yeah. And um, I think it's especially important because from the paralegal perspective, a lot of times um, I'll do the initial intake with clients or I'll touch base with them to gather documents. And uh, so often I'll either get a big folder of everything that they've got saved, or I'll get a couple of emails with just tons and tons of attachments. And it's always um, an interesting and sometimes disappointing moment when you have to tell the client, I, I love that you've given me every receipt since 2015, but they're not all going to, they're not all going to make it. <laughs> and when you say disappointing, is it disappointing for you or the client? Oh, for them, oh. for them, because like you can see that they've, you know, I, I so appreciate the fact that they've taken time and found all the documents that they've, that they think will be helpful. And, you know, taking that step to make our job easier and kind of keep that relationship running smoothly. So they bring in this big packet and then they're like, we can use all of it. And I have to say, <laughs> no, we can't. <laughs> you know, and that's I take really the wind funny. out of their sails and it bums oh, me out. That's really funny um, from my perspective because I go bopping along doing my job and I don't necessarily know that that's happening. I mean, sometimes I know because you'll have a specific question or the client will have a question. And so I get involved in that aspect. But for the most part, when you're doing client intake, the attorney's not necessarily involved. So I, I don't know that that's going on. And what makes it to my desk is evidence that is relevant and useful and probative. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I, I don't necessarily know that that conversation is happening before I'm involved. <laughs> Yeah, so I you mean, say that there are two types of clients, the one that gives you a document dump and then the one that doesn't answer the phone. A hundred percent categories. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's, there's somebody that says, I don't know what you need, but you'll find it as you go. And there's somebody that says, I don't know what I need. So here's everything I own. Um, I, I do appreciate, and I think this is a, a quick little anecdote. I had somebody once send a CD filled with photos. And on that photo, there were a couple photos of like their mailbox and their house number. And this was like a wetlands issue in their backyard. So I was just scrolling through things. I was like, oh, that's odd. And they were like, yeah, it's proof. It's proof that it's my house. I was like, okay. <laughs> Thank you. 
you yeah. just kind of I mean, roll with it. Uh, yeah. But, I, I can't know, be mad at them. <laughs> let's start there because that's a, I think that's a really good example, you know, where, where we're bringing it up because it's anecdotal, but that's more common than you'd think that, mm-hmm. and rightfully so, unless you are a trained lawyer or some other um, industry professional with knowledge of how discovery works, you might think that a certain piece of material, a document, a a text message exchange is evidence that Mm -hmm. will automatically prove your case. So that's that's a a difficult part of the job for us, I think, is to, to explain that, hey, actually, no, this picture or this document can't well it won't even make it its way to into the record like we're not even going to bother with this because mm-hmm. we know that it's just not possible so that's that's the first hurdle i think when you're talking to a client or a potential client about discovery that's the mm-hmm. the first difficult conversation potentially that you could have in the context of discovery yeah and i think it kind of goes back to that um for anybody who's in law school or has completed law school that um, your first day of evidence, I think one of the first questions uh, my professor had said was, is it relevant? Does it have some sort of connection? Does it touch the issue in some way? So that's your first hurdle. And you know, in this case, it was a wetlands issue. Having a picture of your mailbox with the, you know, with the address down the post isn't necessarily relevant. There are other ways to show ownership and other ways um, where you can show ownership and show issue at the same time. So I think for some clients, relevancy might be a conversation worth having, though it can can be a bit difficult. Yeah, because it's so subjective mm-hmm. for the for the client. It can be very subjective. <clears throat> so you mentioned relevancy. That's the first hurdle, right? And the next one mm-hmm. is whether the piece of evidence is probative. And that means whether or not the evidence makes a fact at issue more or less likely to be true. So you've got two things that you've got to overcome or or explain or satisfy before a document can even be considered as evidence, relevancy mm-hmm. and probativeness. Mm-hmm. So that's the that's the kind of the nuance for the 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 discovery process right out of the gates. And then the next part of discovery that I wanted to talk about is what else can be considered when you're moving forward with discovery. In most people's experience, if you've been unlucky enough to be deposed, because sometimes those can be stressful and and negative. And long. And long, yeah, yeah. Uh, deposition transcripts are often used as evidence in the context of civil litigation. And compare that with doing regulatory or administrative type of um, litigation and, and law, which is something that our firm does. You don't necessarily have depositions. Sometimes your witnesses can file pre-filed testimony, which when you look at it, print it out, it has a very similar look Prefile testimony and a deposition transcript look pretty similar, mm-hmm. but they're very, very different. Um, and it, it kind of depends on which venue you're in, superior court, district court <clears throat> versus the Public Utilities Commission, for example. Um, so 
without boring our listeners too much, those are those are the two written and narrative question answer type of discovery materials that you might see. What yeah, else is there, Clarice? What else do we deal with? <laughs> um, oh, I was thinking in terms of evidence, you've got, is it uh, related? Is it relevant to the case? Is it probative? Um, I don't think we deal too often with prejudice. I think that's more, we see that more on the criminal side, or at criminal least side. I have, yeah, I haven't yeah. seen that issue. Um, but I think, you know, covering all of the different types of evidence and all of, or not just touching on it and thinking about what's involved in selecting evidence, what's something that, what's a conversation that you would have with the client to kind of go over this? Or um, do you typically have conversations with clients about why you've selected the evidence you have? What immediately comes to mind when you say that is the environmental litigation context that we work in, where I think we've talked about this in another podcast and and definitely I wrote a blog about it, but under certain federal and state statutes for environmental contamination, there exists something called strict liability and joint and several liability. <clears throat> Those usually go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. And the federal statute that I'm thinking about particularly has to do with Superfund sites. We've definitely talked about these before. Not Superfund, Superfund with a D, where anyone in the chain of title, meaning anyone that historically or currently owns a piece of property that's contaminated, is liable for that contamination, whether or not they caused it. If you owned the property at any point in time, for a Superfund property, you are responsible for the property's cleanup. And that blows people's minds mm-hmm. <laughs> because generally speaking, in other situations, how can you be legally liable for something that you didn't do? Well, yeah, it goes back to roommate rules. Um, wash your own plate. Rules. Yeah. Like when you live with roommates in college and in a dorm, you know, everybody cleans up their own mess. So the idea that that messy room is now any and everybody who lives in that space's responsibility, including the people who lived in that apartment before you. It's, it's jarring. It's not what we're used to. I like that. Superfund is the exact opposite of the roommate rule. Mm-hmm. And this is why okay. it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> it's good for the environment. It's bad for the landowner if you're, if you're a landowner. And, and nope. so in the context of environmental law and evidence, the conversation that I have with clients and others about Superfund is any evidence can be used as evidence that you were an owner of the property, number one, which is what I talked about just now. And number two, if you, if there's any evidence that exists that you caused, contributed, or actually discharged a pollutant on that property, you can be held liable. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by any piece of evidence, I have literally seen parties use a piece of paper, a scrap of paper that they found with a company's name on it and a teeny tiny reference to a certain amount of commercial waste 
And that was it. That was sufficient for purposes of naming the company as a, what's called a potentially responsible party under the Superfund statute. So in that context, forget everything that I've, that we've talked about because a scrap of paper, is it relevant? Sure. Is it probative? I don't know, but Superfund says you can use it. And in that context, it's, it's good enough to, to name you as a, a party that has to assist with the cleanup. Yeah. Hey, I, they must've been pretty happy finding that, that one tiny piece. Yep. Yep. And, I and think- it doesn't matter how old it is or who found it or where it was found. I mean, it's, it's a crazy, well, it's not crazy. I mean, it, it exists um, and people use the, use it. So it, it's just, it's different. It's a different type of um, evidentiary standard in the discovery process. Yeah. So I think a big kind of takeaway or summary of today's topic is discovery is any sort of evidence gathering or um, I don't want to say fact finding, but any fact persuading maybe documents or testimony or things that you and your attorney gather to promote your position. Um, But then going in a little deeper, I think it's important for clients and folks going into litigation to know that there are a set of rules, there are regulations around these documents. And even though we appreciate you taking the time to gather everything, um, I don't want you to be disappointed if it all doesn't make it. I think the general theme is there where we're shooting for the same goal. It just, we might not include every photo or every text screenshot. It happens. Yep. Yep. Still, I say still send it um, as, oh, absolutely. as the paralegal who sorts through it, still send it all. You might not know how helpful or less helpful something could be. So err on the side of excess. More is better for me. And, and for the attorney, because even if you can't use a particular document or piece of material and get it entered into the record, it still can be helpful in other ways. So mm-hmm. being over-inclusive is always something that I request from new clients. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let us do the filtering for you. Um, it's something that we're taught about the rules in that aspect. So we can filter. You just send it all over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Alrighty. On that note, thank you guys for listening. Um, If you have any questions, comments, thoughts, um, if you hear anything about Miss Whale, I don't know. Hopefully, hopefully she, I mean, she's not all right, but (laughs) I was going to say, hopefully she's all right. She's not all right. (laughs) All right, Glory. (laughs) (laughs) Poor Miss Whale. (laughs) Send it to us. Let us know um, at help at desateliesq.com, our Instagram page. Um, We also have some blog posts that we've referenced and a list of all of our episodes up on our website. So if you want to go back and re-listen to uh, witness testimony or super fun sites or things like that, you can always refresh there. Uh, So hope to hear from you guys soon. Have a good week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Environmentally Speaking. If you're in need of an environmental attorney, we are here to help. Call us at 401-477-0023 or visit our website at www.desatellaw.com. That's www.desatellaw.com.
Dot com.